Hello, this is Gary Hutchins with the Sunny Slope Church of Christ in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to our Sunday morning Bible class. We're posting a Bible study each Sunday morning, posted at 9.30, our local time, which is the time we meet together at the Sunny Slope Church of Christ for our Sunday morning Bible class. We're thankful to have the opportunity and the ability and the means to be able to teach God's Word on such a widespread basis through the medium of the internet and by means of these podcasts. Now, we know that there are people who listen in other parts of the country. They cannot be with us, and, and some from around the world, in fact. So they cannot be with us at the Sunny Slope Church of Christ. We know that there are also people in the Omaha area who are physically handicapped or have some other kind of you know, problem you know, that, that keeps them from being able to be with us in person at the times when we meet as a congregation to study God's Word and to worship our Heavenly Father. So again, we're thankful to be able to help people who want to get into God's Word, but they're restricted in some way, to be able to do that, to get into God's Word through the medium, of, uh, through, through the means of these podcast Bible studies. Now, if you're in the Omaha area, we encourage you to come and be with us in person. Again, Bible classes begin on, uh, on Sunday morning at 9.30, followed by worship at 10.30. Sunday evening, we come back together for another period of worship and Bible study at six o'clock each Sunday evening. And on Wednesday evenings, we meet together for midweek Bible classes each Wednesday evening at 630. Now you're welcome to any and all of these services, and we hope to see you soon. Many have come to check us out and to study with us, uh, to learn God's word with us. We hope you'll do the same. Now, we also encourage you to share these studies with everybody you can through Facebook friends, text messages, and other technological means. And tell everybody to go to our website at churchofchrist.com, churchofchrist.com. Click on the podcast button, sign up for our podcasting. It's free. It always will be free. And when somebody signs up for a podcasting, they will automatically receive to their smartphone or computer or whatever smart device they choose our Sunday morning Bible class, our Wednesday night Bible class, all of our sermons, and a daily Monday through Friday radio program we call Search the Scriptures, and a short Bible study every day, only about 13 minutes, but it's seven days a week, keeping us in God's Word, and since faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17, that can really help us grow and stay strong in our faith. We call that short 13-minute Bible study every day, today's Bible class. We believe it can help you and many people you know, so tell everybody you can about it. We're going to get back into our study uh, from the book of Joshua. Now, we've worked our way from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, often referred to as the Pentateuch, and we believe were written primarily by Moses we have moved into the book of Joshua. We're already in chapter 11. And so as Moses died on the eastern bank of the Jordan River before the people of Israel, the Israelites, were led into the promised land, which was at that time the land of Canaan and would become the land of Israel, Moses died on that eastern bank of the Jordan River. He did not enter into, because of some sin that he had committed, taking glory for himself instead of giving it to God back in the wilderness some years before, God allowed him to look into the promised land. 
and from from a, from a, a mountain kind of perspective. But then God God took him and God buried him and did not make the burial site known to anybody. We don't know today even. And perhaps that was, as I suggested, because God realized that, that if the people of Israel, who had so revered Moses as their leader, if they knew where his burial site was, they might be tempted to make that into kind of a religious icon, so to speak, or a place of worship and might end up worshiping the grave of Moses rather than worshiping God, the creator of Moses and all of them. Well, so Joshua then was instructed by God. Moses was to appoint him as the new leader of the people of Israel. And so he led them across the Jordan River into the promised land that God had foretold would be given to them going all the way back many hundreds of years to Abraham, the basis for their bloodline as God designed him to be. Now, so Joshua leads the people into the promised land and they immediately begin their battles of conquest because God told, told Moses and then, and then also Joshua, you don't have anything to do with these people in this land. And there were many different peoples who lived in that land in different parts of it. He's, God says they're idol worshipers. They do not believe in me. They do not follow me. And if you start building relationships with them, they're potentially going to become, well, temptations to you, to pull you away from me. And particularly so if you start intermarrying with them. And so God said, you either drive them out or you completely destroy them in battle. And so Israel has, the Israelites have been faithful to God's instruction except for one group of people that deceived them into thinking they were from a far-off country when they actually were one of the peoples that lived within Canaan. Now, because Joshua and the men of Israel made a covenant in the name of God with that particular group of peoples, they did not feel they could go back on that covenant or that agreement. But they told those people, you will be our servants. Now, the people lied to them, obviously. We might say, well, they deceived them. No, they basically, they lied. Deception is often tantamount to simply a lie. And it was in this case. Now, we're, we pick up with chapter 11. When we looked at chapter 10, we looked at the the conquest of the Southland or the southern part of the land of Canaan. Now, chapter 11 picks up the conquest of the northern part of the land. And so we'll begin reading that, that uh, dialogue. Beginning with verse 1, it came to pass when Jabin, the king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Axphah, to and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains in the plain south of Chinarash, uh, Chinaroth, and in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Parasite, the Jebusite, in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. 
Now, basically, what this king was doing, Jabin, the king of Hazor, was doing when he heard of the conquests of the city cities, the city-states, the peoples to the south, that the Israelite the Israelites, their warriors had been so successful and had been so absolute in their defeats of those people and destroying their cities and destroying the people and driving whatever might have been survivors out of the land, he decided to build an incredibly large and strong alliance with many of the other kings of his northern part of the land of Canaan. And so this would have been a mighty impressive army that would be that would come against the Israelites. So in verse 4, so they went out and all their armies with them as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude with very many horses and chariots. And and probably also we we should understand that these would have been uh, formal armies to a great extent. At least they would have been soldiers trained in battle. When it talks about they had chariots and many horses, remember the Israelites just 40 or so years before had been enslaved in the land of Egypt. And then they had spent about 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. Now they had fought a number of battles on that particular journey from Egypt through the wilderness and then on to the promised land, but they had to learn to fight along the way. They had to learn to be an army along the way. And they were facing they were facing peoples that that basically had you know raised armies and were trained in battle probably for generations. Well, they're going up against a formidable force, a huge army described as being in number as the sand of the uh, as the sand that is on the seashore. And understand you you can't count the grains of sand on the seashore. And so we're talking about a huge, enormous army and with very many horses and chariots and understand chariots, probably the closest thing we would liken them to or compare them to in in our modern armies of today would be maybe a tank, you know, or an armored an armored uh, personnel carrier, you know, one designed to go into battle. Well, verse 5, and when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. So they were all joined together. They were allied, allied together. One massive army to take on the army of Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. Again, what we need to understand is the Israelite army or the Israelite warriors who would form the army, basically. And you might wonder, where'd they get all the swords themselves? There's no indication they had any chariots. Now, maybe they did. I don't know. Maybe they, as they conquered some of these these city-states along the way and destroyed them, maybe they, they took some of the military 
material, you know, and and made it their own and used it. But you know, we're you're speculating on that. But but it, it was not them. It was never going to be them that really gave them that that really gave victory and defeat victory to themselves and defeat against these foreign armies. It was God. God always said, I will give you the victory. I will defeat your enemies. And so God here, very direct, very straightforward. Verse 6 of Joshua chapter 11, he tells Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. That is this massive army that's coming against you. For tomorrow about this time, he even pinpoints basically the time, and it would be the very next day, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. I will deliver them, God says. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. In other words, these armies are going to be utterly destroyed even their materiel, their horses will never be able to go into battle again. Their chariots will be burned. They will no longer exist. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Miram, and they attacked them. Now, if we were thinking about modern-day battle tactics, we might say, let's build a defensive position and then be able to hold off and destroy the attacking army that has to come against us. Let them come to us, and we will build a, a, a formidable defensive position that can cut them down as they come against us. But that was not the tactic that Joshua used. They went on the attack themselves. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of Israel, into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook of of Misrephoth, to the valley of Mizpah, eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. There were none left of that massive, enormous army that came against Israel. God had told the Israelites You destroy those people or drive them out of the country. And here, there were none left. None left. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And so here was basically the most powerful of all those kingdoms, uh, Joshua destroyed, he destroyed uh, that city, basically, I think we're to understand. He took Hazor, struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was the head of all those, uh, all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. The city itself no longer existed. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And of course, Moses gave him that commandment because God had commanded Moses along these lines. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. 
and all the spoil of all these of all these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves but they struck every man they struck every man now they took they took the booty but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they left none breathing as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant so Moses commanded Joshua and so Joshua did he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, we would have a lot of skeptics today who would say, why would God do that? Why would he destroy all the people? Why would he destroy the women and the children along with the soldiers who went into battle? Why would he allow or, or, or command Moses and then through Moses, Joshua, to utterly destroy these cities, to destroy these peoples? Remember the flood in Noah's day, Genesis chapter 6, the people had so, I'm talking about all of humanity, with the exception of Noah and his family, all of humanity had become so evil that God was sorry that he had made them. God created all of them in his image with a soul, but they had so totally turned away from God and turned into evil, the text says that the thoughts and intents of their hearts were only, only evil continually. And there are several references within just a few verses of Scripture that talked about the evil, the wickedness, the sinfulness, the totality of the wickedness and evil of of all of humanity. Again, within just a few verses of that particular text of Scripture, Genesis chapter 6. So God brought the flood upon the world and in that way cleansed the earth of the wickedness of humanity. Again, the only exceptions were Noah and his family. And Noah was found righteous in the sight of God. So I believe we're to understand that the peoples, these different groups of people within the land of Canaan, they were so totally removed from God that evil, sinfulness, wickedness was a basic identity of their lifestyle. And so God instructed Moses and then Joshua through Moses to cleanse the land of them. It is not, it is not healthy for a person who wants to live a godly life to mingle with sinfulness, to mingle, to build close relationships with evil people. The old illustration is, you know, you sleep with dogs, you're going to get fleas. I've often said you walk through a coal mine, don't expect to come out clean, you're going to come out with coal dust on you. You may not notice it while you're walking through the coal mine, but when you get out into the sunlight, you're going to start seeing, oh, wow, I need a bath. Well, 
when you start mingling with evil, then some of that evil is liable to rub off on you. God instructed Joshua, cleanse the land of the evil people living therein. Don't allow them to stay because they can become an evil influence upon your people. And so Joshua was staying faithful to this point in following God's command. Verse 16, thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the, and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal, God, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. We're to understand, I believe, cleansing the land of the evil that went with the worship of idols, with people who no longer followed God. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that was made that or there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim, which was a word that meant giants in the land. And there were giants in that land before Israel entered it. So at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim, none of the giants were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. The land rested from war. What would it be like? And I'm not suggesting that we could or should do this in our land today, but just in your imagination, what would it be like if somehow we could cleanse this land of all of the evil that is so abundant all around us? Now, we point fingers a lot of times at newscasts and newspaper accounts that talk about some heinous crime, some obviously wicked people who do horrible things. But really, those are kind of surface level. 
as far as as you know the notice is concerned evil is all over this land wicked people doing all kinds of horrible things it just doesn't get reported on it becomes so common and they can do it a lot of times in a way that that it's hidden most people don't realize it except the victims of those evil acts what would it be like if somehow there was no more evil in this land almost unimaginable isn't it well there is a place where that is the exact true identity and reality and that place is heaven heaven and God wants you and I to be there with him for all of eternity there there is no evil there there's no sickness no dying no pain no suffering no tears it's a place of righteousness god christ the holy the holy spirit are right there golden streets not like gold we understand today because they're transparent gates of pearl walls studded with precious gems but those are kind of physical characteristics the reality of the redeemed and the angels within that city no wickedness no evil no sin no violence we'll have to be there to experience it I hope you're walking the walk that will lead you there we'd like to help you we'd love to send you a Bible study through the mail talk with you communicate with you through our website at churchofchrist.com you can click on the email link you can phone us at 402-498-8397 that should be the goal of every single human being on earth today and in every generation to be in heaven for all of eternity let's pray father in heaven help us to learn the danger of sin and evil and wickedness and to stay away from it father and help us to help people come to understand their need for forgiveness and their opportunity to be forgiven through jesus christ their savior help us to teach your word help us to teach the gospel everywhere to all people we pray for souls father and all to your glory and according to your will. Please forgive us and hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.